This program is brought to you by PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. To learn more about this podcast, visit pli.edu slash pro bono podcast. We'd like to believe that 21st century courts are doing a much better job addressing the problem of domestic violence. But what if the law is good on paper and trial judges just aren't implementing it very well? And what if some of them are also verbally mistreating the people in their courtrooms? She burst into tears and her sister was in the gallery. She burst into tears and she wheeled around and pointed at the judge and said very forcefully, when I get killed, it's going to be on your head. And the judge stood up and shouted at her, when you get killed, I hope the newspaper spells my name right. In front of survivors of domestic violence, advocates, lawyers, and there was like a... (gasps) Find out how one Chicago pro bono lawyer saw this happen, decided there just had to be a way to hold judges accountable, and then shepherded a pro bono appellate project into existence. Welcome to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute, in which lawyers and clients talk candidly about their pro bono experiences. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken, and for 15 years, I was a legal services attorney in Chicago. Now, I'm a principal at Danu Center for Strategic Advocacy, a national organization supporting advocates and mission-based organizations in their own pursuit of social justice. I'm also a faculty fellow at PLI, where I get to work on special projects like this podcast. This episode is about the pro bono project I wish I had started in Chicago, a project that addressed the problem of how domestic violence survivors get treated in court a problem that I had complained about for years. Despite major advances in legal protections for domestic violence survivors, those legal protections remain out of reach when local judges don't follow the law or violate judicial ethics in how they run their courtrooms. Legal aid lawyers and advocates have long known that the quality of justice for violence survivors depends mostly on which judge is assigned to the case. This is a pro bono project that asks the question, how do we get survivors a second chance at justice when the trial judge messes up? It is a pro bono project that synthesized the best of big firm resources, legal aid expertise, and community partnerships. It is called the Order of Protection Appellate Project, conceived and launched by the Chicago Office of Dentons in partnership with Legal Aid Chicago and Ascend Justice. But to understand why this appellate project is so important, you need to understand what orders of protection are and why they were invented, why violence victims needed major change in the courts, and why we still need to keep a close eye on courtrooms handling domestic violence cases. Now, because we are talking about domestic violence orders of protection, 
we'll be talking a bit about the violence that causes people to ask for them. We have to discuss some specifics about what abuse looks like to understand the importance of insisting that trial judges get it right. But if hearing some examples of violence and abuse isn't okay for you, this might be a good one to skip. And if hearing this leads you to some realizations about your own life, support is available from the National Hotlines for Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault. We'll link to them in the show notes. Okay, now I want you to stay with me for a little history lesson about domestic violence and the law. Until late in the 20th century, judges often claimed they couldn't intervene when someone beat or abused their spouse or dating partner. For a long time, it had been explicitly lawful for men to beat their wives. But even in the 1980s, many judges thought they shouldn't get involved because it was a private family matter. Even when it was illegal, police refused to arrest batterers and prosecutors refused to charge them. In Washington, D.C. in 1966, 7,500 women requested arrest warrants for assault by husbands and boyfriends. Only 200 were issued. An attorney who represented victims in the old days told this story. One of my clients pressed criminal charges against her husband. The judge asked her if this was the first time she had been beaten up. After watching court all morning, she knew that if she said yes, her husband would be released virtually without penalty. So she said, no, this is not the first time. And the judge dismissed the case, responding to her, well, it sounds like you must enjoy getting beaten up if it has happened before. There's just nothing I can do. It was almost like the legal system was gaslighting victims as badly as abusers were. So advocates realized that judges were going to need some very clear directions to get them to take domestic violence seriously. Advocates also realized that violence victims needed a clear mechanism to be protected, one that didn't rely on prosecutors and police to enforce criminal laws. And so orders of protection were born. The Illinois statute was passed in 1986. These are civil cases, meaning the plaintiff is in control of the case. Orders of protection are designed to help people who have been abused or harassed, usually by intimate partners or family members. Orders of protection demand that the person committing the harm stop it. The orders create consequences, including immediate arrest, if the harmful behavior continues. Some version of an order of protection statute exists in every U.S. jurisdiction, and they represent a major sea change in how our court system responds to relationship violence. Okay, so fast forward about 30 years. Order of protection petitions are very common now. But too many judges? Well, they still struggle to handle these cases well. Some judges still struggle to believe abuse happens. They struggle to follow the law as it is written. They struggle to respect the needs of abuse survivors. 
And those judges are very rarely held accountable when they don't follow the law. This OP appellate project was born when pro bono attorneys experienced firsthand how little accountability there was for trial judges hearing domestic violence cases. Now, to get the full story, we sat down with Ben Weinberg, pro bono partner at the law firm Denton's. Ben leads a huge pro bono effort that stretches across the globe. But he and I know each other because we both used to be legal aid lawyers in Chicago. Ben and I had this particular conversation at the Equal Justice Conference in Kentucky in 2019. Our team decided now is the right time to share the conversation with you because the project just had yet another big win in the Illinois Appellate Court. My name is Ben Weinberg. I am the pro bono partner at Denton's. So Denton's is the, is the largest law firm in the world. We have over 10,000 lawyers um, with about half in China. And so I manage the U.S. and the global pro bono programs. So, Ben, you and I know each other, both being you know, from Chicago. So would you talk a little bit about the, some of your pro bono work through the domestic violence court in Chicago? So when I was talking, we, we did a panel about collaborations and how important collaborations are. And we decided to start with, because often at these at conferences, you get the like glory stories right? That people do panels and like, let me tell you about the greatest thing I've ever done. And people are sitting there like, wow, that's really great. But okay, that's a really high mountain to climb. So we decided to start with our failures. And so, so the failure that I was talking about was, so about seven or eight years ago, after Chicago, the Cook County court system had created a domestic violence division, sort of a separate domestic violence division, so that women, and it's overwhelmingly women who were seeking orders of protection, though not exclusively, but didn't have to run around to all these different courts all over Cook County, and they would go to 555 West Harrison that had criminal courts and civil courts. And I think the advocacy community was totally behind this, except for one thing. It turns out that there were no lawyers, with the exception of some legal, a few legal aid lawyers who were representing you know clients who would come to them or domestic domestic violence legal clinic. Let's talk for a minute about the absence of lawyers in the domestic violence courthouse. In some ways, that was by design. There have been concerted efforts to make the courts more accessible to people who can't afford lawyers. The order of protection pleadings have been turned into a comprehensive form with checkboxes. Illinois passed a law that allows non-lawyer domestic violence advocates to help people complete those forms, and they don't have to worry about being charged with unauthorized practice of law. The judges are supposed to be prepared to support unrepresented people appearing before them. In other words, the ability of people to get an order of protection without hiring a lawyer is supposed to be a feature, not a bug. But it has not always worked out the way it was intended. Here's one big problem. If no one in the courtroom knows what the law says, judges can start to make it up a little bit and just make individual decisions, untethered from the statute, about what the judge thinks is the, quote, right thing to do. And if no one else in the room knows the law, well, who's going to question the judge? Without lawyers in a, in a high-volume courtroom, it becomes more like a public aid office. There's less and less law. So there was the administrator for the domestic violence division, and she approached me. We knew each other from back in the day, and she called and said, I want to set up a pro bono project 
where every single domestic violence petitioner will be represented by a pro bono lawyer from one of the big firms. And I said, well, how many, how many is that? She said, well, there's around 50 or 60 a day. It's like, well, wait, times 240 or something business days, where that's like 10,000. So that's like every big law associate has to take two of these every year (laughs) in order to do that. There's no way, you know, they do other things. Yeah. So we said, let's create a pilot project. And so we created a pilot project that would see like, let's let's lower the expectations and see if it just works if we create like for a few months, a calendar, we'll have a few firms participate and it, it worked beautifully. So we said, let's scale it up. So this is the part that I was describing in this panel as a failure is that we started scaling it up and a whole bunch of firms joined and in-house departments. The problem was that my firm, because we had like 95 lawyers in Chicago, it turns out we didn't have the capacity to send two people every month to do this because you quickly ran out. And that was really unfortunate because I thought this was a great idea, but I'm not doing all the work. And in fact, but I did start, typically I manage our program. I don't do the pro bono work. My job is to encourage and facilitate our other lawyers doing it. So I started covering these, a couple. And in one of them, there was an associate had done the the emergency order protection. Then you come back three weeks later to do the plenary order protection that can last for two years. And she had done the emergency and then she'd moved to our San Francisco office and it had been continued a few times. So I stepped in and I hadn't done, I literally had not done an order protection since I had left the Legal Assistance Foundation in the mid nineties. But I'd been around and I had observed and I thought, you know, this is, this, this should be pretty simple. And it, my client was, it was a straightforward case. She had been in a dating relationship with a guy. He had a baby with someone else. Seems fair to break up at that point. He, of course, was not done with the relationship, would call and text her 50 times a day, call her in the morning, you know, at five in the morning, was harassing her. And her reaction to that was, not surprisingly, anger. So they got the emergency order protection, and we went for the plenary hearing. The guy was unrepresented, and we had printed out the texts that he got, that she had received. And I would, we had been completely fair, didn't cherry pick anything, but we gave, so we presented it to the judge. And the judge, it was, quickly became apparent that while he noticed the fact that there were lots of texts, what he really noticed was the language that my client used to express her anger, which was some very good swearing. She was very, extremely salty, and he was sort of titillated by it. Ooh, listen to this one and read it into the record. And, you know, we sort of presented all the evidence. It was, it was clear he was harassing her. She felt harassed and therefore was angry. End of subject, we win. The judge, uh, we made sort of closing statements, arguments, and the judge denied the order of protection, ruling that she wasn't afraid of the guy. Because she was angry. And, and at first... And my, my, I argued, of course, well, we're not alleging she's afraid of him. We're alleging she's harassed and angry and we don't have to prove, look at the box on the form. We just have to prove that she's harassed and we've shown what she's testified without contradiction, how it's affected her. We win. And he, he then was getting, you know, annoyed at me and said more forcefully, she is not afraid of him, except that she was afraid of him. So the reason that Chicago has a domestic violence division Mm -hmm. 
is because a council that I sat on concluded that we needed its own division so that we could have specially equipped judges who were prepared to handle this kind of work. Yep. That hasn't worked. No, it hasn't. No. So you see what I mean when I say I have been complaining about problems in domestic violence court for years. When the chief judge created the Domestic Violence Courts Commission, we worked hard to understand why violence victims were being mistreated and getting terrible outcomes in court. We knew the statute was very good. We knew the forms were very clear. And in our research, we learned that many judges just were not a good fit to handle this topic, to sit in these largely lawyerless courtrooms. And because of the way that Cook County courts were organized, the domestic violence courtrooms were getting stuck with judges who were ill-suited to do the work. So we recommended, and the chief judge implemented, a structural change a whole separate special division for domestic violence cases. The promise, the promise was that the judges would only be assigned to that courthouse if they were a good fit for the work. And despite that, a judge in that special division in front of a full courtroom shouted at a woman that he hopes the paper spells his name right when she gets killed. So that obviously did not calm things down. My client crying and shouting and the judge screaming at us to approach the bench where whereupon as a lawyer I'll say he threatened both of us with criminal contempt and I was thinking I can find some pro bono lawyers for us I think threatened us with criminal contempt and said something like look you don't have to like my ruling and you can run around this courthouse and I think he actually sat on the record and talked shit about me but the one thing you may not do is talk back to me. And of course, I'm thinking in my head, hey, that sounds a little like you may have some abuse issues in your life. Whoa. Yeah. And so we walked out. And of course, I said to my client, I am so sorry that that should not have happened. We should appeal. We sh-. And she was like, and I won't repeat exactly what she said, but essentially like, I'm done with you all. You people are insane. This whole system is insane. And and you told me that I could get help here. You all forget all of you. And she stormed out. And so I went back to my office. And back in my legal aid days, nothing that bad had happened. But you know, bad things happen. And you and you sort of get a sort of gallows humor about it, right? Oh, you think that's bad. Listen to this. Right. right. But I was like, I so I, I decided to order the transcript. So I ordered the transcript, and there was literally, like, people shouting over each other. And when I got the transcript, I knew that, that, that we were right, that this, was, that this guy was bad, because the court reporters got everything he said. So it had the client, when I get killed, dot, 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 and then it had everything the judge said exactly right. And the court reporters aren't in the room. They're like, there's, they record it. And they can so, so the fact that they were able to get all of that, they knew he was a bad guy. So then the question was, so what do I do? Right? Oh, because this client said, she, right, I don't want to appeal. Like, all you people are insane. Yeah. Right. The system is terrible. I don't want to be part of it. 
This is where Ben uncovered a real logistical problem with holding judges in order of protection court accountable. The cases are brought by trauma survivors who really just need to get an order in place quickly and move on with their lives. Ideally, the whole process is supposed to take no more than a month or two. So when a judge does something that might be appealable, most survivors just don't have the time, energy, or money, let alone a lawyer, to facilitate appealing the judge's decision. And if judges never get appealed, well, they can start to think the way they handle the cases is the right way, even when it definitely isn't. And while there are lots of projects trying to connect domestic violence victims with free lawyers, those are trial-level projects designed to be relatively quick representation that will be over in a month or two, maybe six months at the most. Appeals, well, those are a much bigger investment of resources. But Ben works for the largest law firm in the world, and he believed his client should absolutely have won under the clear law. And the judge's demeanor? Well, it was outrageous. Ben is not the kind of guy to just give up and move on. Well, there was no appellate. So after I ordered the transcript, so I talked to Domestic Violence Legal Clinic we'd worked with and LAF. And I decided I was going to file a complaint with the Judicial Inquiry Board, which is the body that's set up to investigate claims of misconduct by judges. And it's like the rules are you're not supposed to treat people with disrespect Raise your voice or whatever it was. It was like, okay, we got a triple header. Trifecta, right? We got them all. <laughs> and, and I talked to the Domestic Violence Legal Clinic and other people who are involved in this pro bono project, and I got other stories, like where he had been really insulting in some other case. And we ordered the transcripts. We get all of it together, and I file a complaint. And the investigator comes over from the Judicial Inquiry Board and I show him the transcript. He's like, oh, oh, my – I Wow. Oh, this is terrible. I was like, okay, so how does how does this work? He said, well, I investigate, I write up a complaint, and then it goes through channels. I was like, okay, fine. And like six weeks later, I get a letter from the Judicial Inquiry Board saying, thank you very much for bringing this complaint to us. Your complaint has been closed. <laughs> so I call, and of course, it's all confidential. They can't tell me, but I said, can you tell me if it got to the point in the process where the judge is confronted with this? No. No. Well, 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 and then I was like, I mean, I, I had not been the victim of abuse or anything, but I was like, okay, this is ridiculous. The disinterest of the Judicial Ethics Board, well, it shocks but does not surprise me. Trial judges just have an enormous amount of independence. I mean, even a chief judge of a division is really just a first among equals. The one measure of accountability that tends to impact trial judge behavior is publicity, whether that means stories in the newspaper or a public rebuke from the appellate court in a formal decision. So Ben started thinking about how to get attention on this domestic violence courtroom in Chicago. Now, when he tells the story, you'll hear Ben refer to the partner organizations Legal Aid Chicago and Ascend Justice by their old names, LAF and Domestic Violence Legal Clinic, or DVLC. So then I consulted with a few other people, and my two choices were the press or appealing. Now, we couldn't appeal in this case, but I called LAF and DVLC, and we sat down, and, and I said, we should start appealing. 
And they said, well, we, we never appeal, partly because we don't have funding for that. You have to get the transcript really quick and you have a, 30 days to file the notice of appeal and we, we can't really pay for the transcript, but even if we could, we never get them fast enough. So we would basically just have to file notices of appeal and, and we don't really do that. We don't do appellate work. And this part right here is the part I had been complaining about forever because I was at legal aid back then. And we did do appellate work. I mean, I did it. But it was mostly in employment or housing cases. We just really never did appeals for order of protection cases. And all of the barriers and concerns Ben just described were the same reasons given to me. I didn't like it. I complained about it. I announced that our mission should be to put the law back in family law. But not surprisingly, my ranting didn't make change. Ben's strategic thinking, however, well, that did make change. And his access to Denton's resources, that didn't hurt either. And so we said, let's just try. Let's try one. And we have to figure, and so D, I think it was DVLC, they had a case where both sides were represented in front of the same judge. And it was, it just, it was a standard case. Guy had, you know, the dating relationship, he had been very physically abusive. She was going through the incidents of abuse, and one of them is he drove her to the airport. They were in court, and she said something, and he got mad and punched her in the head. So that was the right, the last evidence. And at the end, the judge denies the order of protection because the fact that she was getting a ride from him to the airport so close to when she sought the emergency showed that she wasn't afraid of him. So she lost. A woman testified that her boyfriend had punched her in the head while she was getting a ride to the airport. But the judge ruled that she did not need an order of protection because she had gotten that ride recently, so she must not be afraid of him. It sounds a lot like a judge saying she asked for it by voluntarily getting into his car for a ride. It is a really problematic basis for the judge to deny an order of protection. But that's not actually the worst part of this story. The judge had the facts wrong. He completely confused the order of events in the testimony. The ride to the airport that he said was so recent she must not be afraid, it had happened a year earlier. It wasn't a recent event. It was an old one. The victim's lawyer told the judge that, but the judge absolutely refused to reconsider his ruling. Before Denton's OP appellate project idea, that violence survivor would have just lost. Game over. However, this was the moment when Denton's was looking for a test case. We took that case to appeal. And it's difficult to win a case on facts, right? But we won. It was reversed because we had the evidence. The facts were wrong. You could say the facts were wrong. Yeah. It was like the wrong year. So we thought, well, okay, so we should, we should try this. So what we did is we did a giant training for the advocacy community because we realized we needed to make sure that the community knew about it. And so we did a training for the legal aid lawyers because our lawyers knew how to do appeals, and, but the, the, the DVLC and LAF lawyers didn't really. And so we did a big training and we trained the advocates on how to make a record. This training right here is part of the strategic genius of this project. Remember, I said that most people don't have lawyers in order of protection court. And I said that domestic violence advocates can help people complete the forms, even though they are not lawyers. 
So lots and lots of appealable decisions are being issued with no lawyer in the courtroom. And some appealable decisions are being made with a legal services attorney who may not have any background or training in appellate work. Both advocates and frontline domestic violence lawyers needed training on how to make a record when a judge was getting things wrong. Right, because to file an appeal, you can't just say there was all sorts of bad stuff that happened. There were mistakes made. There has to be a record of it so the appeal, the appellate court can review it. So we just stressed, like, if there's evidence, you, you know, you tell people you have to try to offer evidence. Don't just say, you know, so we, we did that whole thing. And then we just started waiting and we started getting appeals and... And we got them first from the legal aid groups, and then we started get them from different organizations. And then we got our first, so we got a we got a case where, so one of the ways that the order protection system works is that there's a form that's in sixplicate through carbon because <laughs> it's Cook true. County. There is a goldenrod page. Yes, there is a goldenrod page. And one of the reasons you have that is so that the police have standardized forms because there's a history of the police not enforcing orders of protection well. So one of the sort of reforms is if you have this standard form, they know how to enter it into the lead system so that when someone calls and says that there's a violation, they can check it out and they can follow it all. Well, this one judge didn't like the form, just didn't like it. So at the end of an order of protection hearing, he would literally open his drawer, pull out like a blank order and write like injunction on it. And just sort of put some some terms on it. And of course, the lawyers would object, but he was the judge. The difference between an order of protection and a judge's injunction is a very big deal. Judges have always been able to issue injunctions. But if you violate an injunction, what are the consequences? Well, the other party in the case has to bring a motion to the judge and say, He violated your injunction, Your Honor, and you should punish him. And then time-consuming litigation ensues. What happens if you violate an order of protection? The police have already put the order into their computer system. It's called Leeds in Illinois. And they can make an arrest on the spot. Then the prosecutor can charge him with the crime of violating the order of protection. Now think about it. If you have been harassed, stalked, and beaten by your partner for years, and he shows up at your house, would you rather have him arrested and removed right away by the police? Or would you rather spend the next two months filing motions, for which there are no pro se forms, waiting for his written response, and seeing if the judge feels like enforcing the injunction? So now you see why refusing to use the order of protection form matters. And so we took this case and filed, we filed an appeal. And what happened was exactly what the problem, what we thought was going to happen. Client goes like to the mall. The guy shows up and is following her. She calls the police. They come. She hands her order. And they're like, what is that? We don't have this in leads. What? We don't even know what that we're supposed to do with this. And so we actually filed to supplement the record with all of this. And the court, Justice Hyman, who's a very progressive, very smart judge, he's the inventor of Pro Bono Week in Chicago. (laughs) He wrote for the unanimous court a beautiful opinion. 
it was beautiful in several ways. One of which is that it starts out like, if upon finding that the petitioner has satisfied the requirements of the Domestic Violence Act, is the judge free to forego the standard forms and instead use his own form? No. <laughs> but then the other thing that the judge had said was, ah, look, you have to understand. I, I don't want to do this, all this rigmarole. You have to understand he loves you. He still loves you. And I understand you moved on, but he still loves you. In fact, the trial judge told the petitioner that she had to respect that her abusive ex-partner loved her. This was after evidence that he physically and sexually assaulted her. Her lawyer had entered pictures of her bruises into evidence. And as the judge was refusing to give her an order of protection, he told her what women have been told for centuries, frankly, that his violent, harassing attention should be interpreted as love and that she should have respect for it. This happened in 2015 in a specialized domestic violence court where judges were supposed to be handpicked. The appellate court felt it just had to address how inappropriate that was. And Justice Hyman, writing for the court, wrote a beautiful statement about about domestic violence is about power and abuse and control. It is not love. And And they released it as a published opinion. So we have a published opinion from the domestic violence and the whole idea of this, I get chills, the whole idea of the project was to bring law into the courthouse. And that case, the presiding judge went around to everyone, delivered it, and said, no more ersatz orders. Use the form. And so that's why we created the project. And so it was really great. That's fantastic. So this project is, I mean, I'm going to editorialize a little bit because my experience being in Chicago as a lawyer who was also training lawyers and advocates is that this project changed everybody's perspective on who holds power in the courtroom because we were talking to advocates who were going to court with with survivors, no lawyer present, and saying, you get to offer evidence. Yeah. And it is okay to say to the judge, we'd like you to do this. And if the judge says no, that's not the end of it. Right? You, you have the ability to speak what you need to speak, and they're not allowed to shut you down. And if they do, there's, an, there's another level. Yeah. And, it, was, and it, it, it makes a particularly good pro bono project because, I mean, one of, the, one of the challenges for pro bono is that we want to make sure we're not just making work, right? We want to make sure that we're, we're delivering marginal value, right? That we're actually helping with something. And this is a perfect example where no one was doing this in Chicago. And also, we fully recognized that our firm, we were not the experts at LAF and DVLC folks. They were the experts. So now we have a division of labor that works really efficiently, which is they do the intake. So people funnel potential appeals to them. And if either DVLC or LAF thinks that we should order transcript, the law firm uses our special expertise to pay for expedited transcripts. <laughs> so they send me email. I then forward it to my assistant who forwards to our docketing department and we pay. And I think over the, so we've been doing it, you know, like five years. We've paid, you know, $20,000 over those five years for transcripts because we don't take every case because it turns out people remember things that 
didn't quite get into the transcript. But we order the transcript, then we scan it and email it back to them, and they decide whether there is merit to the appeal. If there is, we do it. So it works well. And if I remember correctly, you have an in-house counsel from one of your clients? Allstate, we actually did. We have partnered with Allstate on some of the appeals where we split it up. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other thing what's been really good for my pro bono program is that we actually use lawyers all over the country to do these cases. Because they love it. So it actually, the and LAF is, is very smart about this. They've actually created an award every year. They have like a volunteer appreciation reception. And there's an award that's called like the, whatever we call it, the Cook County Domestic Violence Appellate Project Volunteer of the Year. And I was like, this is my favorite thing because it's not really overall my favorite thing, but it's so great. It's an award that only we can win. <laughs> <laughs> it's an award. It's an award for whoever volunteers in our project. I may not tell everyone at the firm that we won the domestic violence appellate award again. <laughs> Woo-hoo! All kidding aside, this is an important award-worthy project. And in fact, in October of 2022, the network, a domestic violence policy and advocacy nonprofit, they gave Dentons their leadership award for the OP Appellate Project. The project has handled 20 appeals and won 18 of them. Three of the appellate opinions were published and created precedent for the whole state. This is an amazing record of success. And the most recent win? It came down in a published decision in the summer of 2022. In that case, the petitioner testified to four incidences of violence over a six-year period. She testified that her partner threw a coffee table at her, dragged her by the ankle out of their apartment, threatened to kill her repeatedly, kicked her down a flight of stairs, and in the final incident, punched her in the back of the head, then put her in a chokehold and squeezed her neck while saying he would kill her. In that case, the trial judge denied her order of protection because she had thrown water at him during the last argument the one where he punched her in the head and tried to strangle her. Because of the OP Appellate Project, the appellate court had an opportunity to reverse that decision, giving future judges guidance on how to consider past abuse and how to assess questions about who is the primary aggressor. And most importantly, the appellate court ordered the trial court to issue a two-year order of protection for that violence survivor. We're highlighting this project because we think it is pretty unique, but there may be appellate pro bono work going on in your community. You can contact your local legal aid to find out how they are supporting pro bono in this area. And appellate work, that can be a terrific fit for the scheduling needs of in-house counsel. So if you are an in-house lawyer and this story inspires you, talk to your outside counsel firm about whether you'd want to get an appellate project going in your community. Or if you just want to dip your toe, maybe try contributing to a team on one case, you can contact the organization DV Leap, which stands for Domestic Violence Legal Empowerment and Appeals Project. Founded in 2003, They are the national experts on using appellate law to improve the legal system for violence survivors. And they are always looking for pro bono help. You can do transcript review, legal research, or be lead counsel on a brief. 
We'll link to DV Leap's Get Involved page on the episode webpage. This OP appellate project in Chicago has been holding trial courts accountable for almost 10 years now. This work matters. And the published decisions, they have the power to improve the whole system. And every donated hour of your time on projects like this, it helps to build a court system that treats people well and reduces violence in the community. Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. This production is dedicated to the pro bono and public interest lawyers working to improve access to justice. A special thanks goes to our producer, Daniel Pinitz, as well as our host, Alicia Aiken. Please note that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast represent those of the individuals being interviewed and not necessarily those of PLI. PLI is a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys and other professionals at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. For more information about PLI's wide-ranging curriculum of pro bono programs, visit pli.edu/probono.